0: Here is iUniverse
1: Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Hellhounds of High School. And the author is Patricia Marie Budd. And Patricia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Patricia. Hi. Good to have you with us. And we're going to uh, read just a couple of things you've written here to set the stage for discussing your book, You're an experienced uh, veteran teacher and have some very strong views of what's going on in today's school system, and here's what you say. Students of the new millennium meet a tough adversary when they go up against Mrs. Priscilla Bird, a veteran teacher practicing her craft in northern Alberta, Canada. She struggles with parents, students, and administrators during a time when self-entitlement rules. Why write this and publish this? Uh, Obviously, you get strong feelings about this, don't you, Patricia?
2: Indeed, I do. I've been teaching for, I've been teaching since 1991. And um, the one thing that I've noticed as a a trend in terms of all of the ways in which education is, um, it is and it needs to be, you know, the kind of sort of, entity that will constantly change and meet the needs of the current society but once what i'm observing is that our society is has produced and continues to produce a young populace that is is as the wording says self-entitled that everything is to be given and everything is to be quick and fast-paced and um time and effort and work is um, an infringement upon that.
1: They have rights, these students.
2: Indeed, and everyone has rights. And I do not object to the fact that we have raised our children to know and be aware of their rights. That is one of the fundamental important elements that every parent and every society has to instill in their youth. What's been replaced, though, or what's been removed is the responsibility that is as equally important. One's rights are crucial, but one's responsibility to not just self, but to society, to others is equally as crucial. It's the balance that makes for a healthy individual and a healthy society. That balance is skewed, it's off. It's all focused on individual rights, but with no focus on societal responsibility we see that responsibility to others as an infringement of our rights today and as a result um everyone is focused on you know what's good for me and what's good for me and in every situation is not to have to work hard which of course is counterproductive in an educational environment
1: for whom is this novel written
2: Teachers and students in particular. Teachers, because a teacher should never forget what it means to be a student. And students, because students and teachers work hand in hand in the classroom. It really needs to be a mutual give and take between the educator and the students. And then parents are also a crucial component. I would like, hope that parents would read the book and Not take offense, but rather see it as an opportunity to learn about how important their role in the educational process is.
1: Well, tell us about Mrs. Priscilla Bird, this veteran teacher. I guess she's pretty demanding.
2: She is focused on ensuring that her students not only understand and can assimilate the curriculum and uh, successfully you know, accomplish all of the tasks required within the curriculum, but she also wants her students to think independently as well as collectively. In, in one way, Mrs. Bird has been teaching in what many people might consider too long. She's been in the system for a very long time. She's seen all the changes. She's in, in some respects cynical, but she, her love for the students is so great that that cynicism cannot manipulate or control her the way it has with others you know other teachers. Um, as teachers who become cynical tend to either retire early or um, everybody wants them to retire early. Mrs. Bird, she's seen a lot, but she believes in the young mind. She believes in her. Students and she wants very much for them to do well. when she encounters, of course, probably the smartest and stupidest student she's ever taught, she finds herself in this trap that teachers can fall into "I've got to get rid of this kid I've got to get rid of this kid," he is And you know sometimes, legally, you need to remove a student like that because they are in fact infringing on every other student's right to education. Again, there you go. You have the individual right to an education, but you have the collective right to an education.
1: So okay. she must confront students with all types of problems, and one of the key characters is Greg. Mm-hmm. Tell, yeah, us, tell us about Greg.
2: He's got a very interesting background. He's like many of the students that I personally have taught in the past who are very bright, but their environment in which they come to me from are so, in some cases, quite brutal that they do not meet or they do not excel the way in which they should. Um, In fact, they begin to make choices that um, break down their ability to further their education. Greg and his father, his father, Danny Boy McGregor, is a drug dealer, and he and his son have a great little family home business in which they sell drugs to the community. And Greg's father deals with the adult clientele that she pulls in mostly from the plants where he works, and Greg's job is to bring in the teenage clientele. And uh, Greg is the product of a divorced family, And um, his mother and sister moved away. Greg chose to stay with his father, and uh, so his father wouldn't be alone. But his father, after the divorce, got even more heavily into drugs and alcohol and took his son on this little song and dance with him. And so here's Greg, who, up till grade seven, was, you know, a little scholar in school working really hard, getting his homework done, writing great little stories. The teachers all love them. Then grade 8 comes along, and it's like a switch turns off in his head or his heart, and he becomes, you know, the proverbial bad, I don't want to swear, proverbial bad jackal. There you go. That's a good <laughs> word to use for it. He becomes a little jackal. And he gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And his life is building up to a head, and that head kind of meets in Mrs. Bird's classroom. And between Mrs. Bird, the principal, and the high school counselor, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's father, all of these people affecting his life in a very positive manner help him to come forward. And that's another thing that I want to express about education through this book that's important. One person alone, like you get all of your hero teachers out there, and this hero teacher has taken this kid and made him wonderful, or this hero teacher has taken this class and made them brilliant, and so on and so forth. But it's not just the teacher. The teacher is a key player. It's like you're, it's like the stage. You have your actors, you have your protagonist, and your antagonist, and you have your other characters, and so on and so forth. And yes, the teacher and student, they are your key characters. They're your main characters in this stage called education in the classroom. But there are other players that are crucial to helping mold and direct this the children's education. The principal, the administration on staff, the school counselor, that's Mr. Lloyd. The school counselor is so, so important. These people save lives, literally save lives, on a regular basis in the high school because there's a lot of kids who are heavily into drugs. There are a lot of kids who are suicidal. There are kids who come from abusive families, kids who are suffering from incest, um, kids who are suffering from you know being beaten at home. These people are their sort of first line of defense in a sense so you've got mr lloyd who for five years has been struggling to help gregory mcgregor you know, because he went to, he was the counselor at greg's junior high and now he's the counselor at greg's high school and so he's been working with this boy you know since grade eight through to grade 12. so then you've got you know the role that he's been playing and, and building on for five years it's not a quick fix these are things that that take years sometimes to fix and then you've got um his girlfriend's father who can't stand the kid because of course he's a dopehead and he's dating his daughter but in the same token when greg reaches out for help the man is there which totally stuns greg so the fact that there are all these positive influences in this boy's life in a time of intense negativity. So I guess that's the thing. We have to consider, you know, are we the positive or negative forces in an individual's life? Um, And sometimes being a positive force in an individual's life, and when it comes to high school education more times than not, that means not necessarily being the good guy or being the nice guy, Sometimes it means you have to really, you know, push the individual or, you know, challenge the individual, not pamper them. Pampering, you know, with an alcoholic family system, that's called the enabler, the individual who assists in keeping um, the addict addicted.
1: And then there's Mary and Frank, who you say endure daily abuse at the hands of their peers, and their lives may even be in danger.
2: Mm, Yes, you see, um, Mary is a very unattractive young woman. And we are, in general, as a society, prejudiced against those who are not physically attractive. She's overweight. Acne is a huge problem for her. Um, Kids like to ridicule and make fun of her. She gets tripped up in the hallways. She gets sexually abused because, you know, the heavier you are, the bigger the breasts. And, you know, there's there's all the jokes around the size of her breasts and things like that. A lot that happened to Mary in my book actually happened to me when I was in high school. The only difference was I was skinny as a rail. Um, But when Mary gets trapped between two desks and the boys are abusing her, that happened to me. High school can be a, a... a very um, vicious jungle. And the sad thing is a lot of educators really go out of their way to try and try and stop and and, you know, dissuade the bullying. And the the really sad thing is a lot of it happens in 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 such insidious ways we we don't see it. We don't see half of what goes on. Frank Frank is whether he's gay or not is irrelevant. Um, there's a good chance that he is. There's a, good cha- there's a there's also the chance that he might not be. But you see, Frank has not been given the choice to decide for himself. Frank looks like a girl. Frank is very feminine, effeminate in his, his physical appearance. And, you know, the, the young boys that walk into the high school who have not matured into that more masculine appearance or who never mature into that masculine appearance are immediately pinpointed as gay. Now, there are, it's a more modern society today. We've got more um, positive um, media to, to help with, you know, our homosexual youth. You know, there's Ellen DeGeneres, there's Will, there was Will and Grace, that sort of thing. That doesn't change the fact that it is still one of the most voracious prejudices that's intringent in society. Most people do not like gays and lesbians. so and just the fact that he looks like a girl and everybody calls him you know the all the politically incorrect terms of faggot and et cetera et cetera that's the nicest of them that are expressed um and he he even incurs you know physical abuse from his peers
1: well, you say this, take a close, comical, and realistic look at a Catholic school system and discover why dedicated people at a revered institution don't always have all the answers in hellhounds of high school. Well, Patricia, we're just about out of time. Any closing thoughts just in uh, 30 seconds?
2: Well, it is a comical book. It's The other thing that I'd like to point out for people is that it's an illustrated book. I was, have always been envious of Charles Dickens every time I get one of his illustrated books and, you know, every third or fourth page is this wonderful picture that was drawn by a Collins. I can't remember the... Wilkie Collins' brother did all of his illustrations. I, um, I wanted a, a way to caricaturize the classroom both by word and by image. And so I collaborated with Vancouver artist Taryn Akanel and she drew 90 images that complement the text, and um, I also feel that comedy is one of the best ways to reveal for us some of the uh, some of the not so nice lights that that uh, within our our society. Comedy can really get you to open your eyes in ways that you know tragedy is not necessarily quite as effective at. That's not fair. Tragedy can be very effective, but. For this, I really felt the need to be able to have people laugh long and loud and at the same time recognize that uh, it's black comedy. There are some very ugly pictures out there, too.
1: The author is Patricia Marie Budd and her book, Hellhounds of High School. Patricia, tell us how to get your
2: book. You can order it through any bookstore. I partnered through iUniverse and Chapters. So it's, it's in the chapter system, so go to Chapters, go to Indigo, go to Cole, and order the book. You can order it online through iUniverse, through their bookstore. You can order it online through my website, www.patriciamariebudd.ca. There's an e-book, a, that's $9.99, a soft cover that's $18-ish, and a hardcover that's around, uh, just under $30. So I hope people get to reading Hellhounds of High School and uh, get a good laugh and enjoy it, but also see our education system for what it's becoming.
1: Patricia, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after
3: these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon central on Togginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not So Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Whether you're a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning Rx, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning Rx programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life-changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning Rx comes in. Call today 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning Rx can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning Rx, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on TogiNet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio
1: with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dormant Enhancement. And the author is Jack Richards, and Jack joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jack. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. This is a very sobering subject, this theme, uh, you call it, A futuristic drama, quasi thriller, but of course, dormant enhancement, as everyone will learn, uh, hits real close to home because it's talking about our problems in school and our kids not getting what they need from school and uh, all the, all the, Problems that can be associated with that. We see it in the news. We see what young people are taking to the streets and gangs and all kinds of uh, violence and destruction. Uh, You say it was clear to everyone that the public schools were failing, the causes were varied. To combat these problems, a program called Dormant Enhancement was developed by a team of educators and scientists by the year 2018. It was the law of the land. And, of course, this law, with no exceptions, children had to go into it, and they were to receive uninterrupted programming, and the nation is delighted with the results. What a theme. What a plot. <laughs> <laughs> what was the motivation? I, I guess maybe we already covered it.
4: <laughs> I Probably most people would agree that, American education's broken. But generally, when something's broken, the natural thing is to try to fix it. I took a, a close look at it and consider exactly what was broken and what should be done to fix it, and then who should do this. Um, and I guess the whole story is kind of a cautionary tale uh, about what could happen and uh the focus is on the actions and behavior of the protagonist in the story named Sharon and the problems that she encounters and um, her problem becomes our problem perhaps in the future so um yeah i uh, i've been in education my whole life and uh, uh dealt with literally thousands of students and, and other teachers and administrators and some of the conclusions i've reached are the result of that
1: well here we are 2011 and you're talking about uh, something happening in 2024 after this law took effect in 2018 and sharon bradbury is right in the middle of it uh, a mom a mom whose husband has died she's kind of alone she's got two boys 12-year-old Eric now, and 8-year-old Brock. Well, tell us about Sharon and what she's feeling and seeing.
4: Well, Sharon was born here in the United States and went to school and was raised uh, here and uh, met her husband, who was from Australia. Uh, They fell in love. Uh, He went to University of California. She went to Stanford. Uh, After they were married... Uh, They moved to Australia, and uh, he, uh, his father, actually, and he carried on the tradition, owned a huge ranch, and that's where they've lived for most of their life, but their first child was born in the United States, and um, so when she has to return after the death of her husband, she comes back to live with her parents in Carmel, Uh, she realizes uh, that uh, this child, this oldest child, who is still an American citizen, has to enter uh, the system of education called dormant enhancement. And she is terribly upset by this and does what she can to prevent this, but uh, encounters all kinds of problems, and eventually this will even threatens her life and, the, and her loved one's life.
1: So at the age of 12, with no exceptions, these young men and young women are placed into individual cubicles. Tell us about that.
4: Well, uh, we have all kinds of problems, and when a person sets about to correct the problems, one of the first things I think that they'd try to achieve is an elimination of the negative influences uh over in our society and from their peers uh the gangs uh the influence uh by those students who are what we might consider undesirables or the in, the negative influences from uh the media uh from television from all kinds of things uh in their society and they finally realized that the only way to avoid that would be to place them in these individualized cubicles uh... and proceed with their education there and essentially i suppose we could use the term "brainwash" them uh... and uh... prepare them in a manner that's acceptable to suitable to the desires of the parents um, so when The kids, of course, now graduate. Uh, They really have been programmed to be contributing members of society. And, in effect, they've been removed from society because there's where so many of our problems come from today. And hence the uh, idea of domestic tranquility. We have peace in our society. We have uh, well-adjusted kids now, (laughs) what we would call well-adjusted. But, of course, they are... uh, exactly what we want them to be, no problem to society.
1: So these kids go off to school when they're 12 in this dormant enhancement program, and are they uh, taken out of the home for the four years?
4: Oh, yes, absolutely. And um, and yet it, it sounds a little bit like they are cut off from society, but within the cubicle, of course, uh, is a system where... Uh, They participate in activities that they'd never have a chance to participate in uh, in the real world. Um, They travel all around, you know, by means of a program uh, within the uh, system. Not only do they learn, but they have uh, uh, experiences with other students. It's in their mind, of course.
1: uh, All virtual.
4: All virtual, that's right.
1: Hmm. So... Sharon, realizing what's going to happen, she, I'm sure, solicits the help of people who uh, can take on this the establishment. Who does she reach out to?
4: Well, first of all, she uh, is not told the full truth by her parents who want her to come back to the United States after the death of uh, her husband, and uh, they tell her that uh, they can get an exemption for her, that, he, that the child wouldn't have to be in the school. Well, that's not true. And so when she gets back, uh, immediately she's visited by someone from the school who says that your child is already behind and that they have to get him enrolled immediately. And uh, she goes to meet the director of the local school that's in Monterey. Uh, and is informed by him that she must uh, enroll the child immediately. And, of course, uh, uh, he gives her all the reasons why, and and she lets him know that she does not want him in the school, but she's informed that she has no choice. And uh, so she's actually arrested because she refuses to conform, and uh... then eventually uh, turns to uh... an attorney uh... a friend of well her husband their best man in their wedding is an attorney but uh... an old uh... law school professor of his who's now retired uh... they appeal to him and he does agree to take the case and so they uh... bring legal action against this and uh... pretty much what she attempts to do in order to avoid his forced entry into the school
1: and the battle starts and at this time there's things are so bad with the opposition against it there is even an underground movement called free the children
4: well uh... at first uh... the people did not want to give up their children give up their children they we found that they spent only a few minutes a day with their children anyway uh, but uh, they were against this initially, but the success of the program, the improved education, the uh, reduction in uh, societal problems, uh, led the country to uh, accept, not only accept it, but to warmly embrace the program. So uh, they uh, then become real proponents of, they, they support the program uh, enthusiastically, and the uh, movement against it—the Save the Children movement that you mentioned—actually begins to diminish rather significantly. Till now, it's it's uh, kind of an underground movement, um, joined by people who still want uh, do not want to give up their child, so to speak.
1: What about the child's creativity?
4: Well. Um, <laughs> The creativity uh, is stifled because they are basically imitating, they're learning things rote by rote, and so uh, the individuality um, that we cherish uh, begins to disappear, and when these kids enter college, uh, at least in some departments, uh, they notice that the kids don't have a lot of ingenuity, don't have a lot of creativity uh, anymore. But they are well adjusted, and uh, they're quite—they uh, uh, are contributing members of society. Let's put it that way. That makes everybody happy.
1: Well, that's interesting observation because once you take away that spark of interest in the in some unknown and in what. Is people are attracted to once you've eliminated that, uh, that really changes everything, doesn't it? It really it's- changes the pre- people's personalities, their drive for success. Uh, I mean, we could make a long list. Oh, I
4: I would totally agree with you.
1: So it it comes down to I guess you asked the question, you know, how much personal freedom. Are you willing to sacrifice in order to ensure domestic tranquility? Boy, that is a question that 10 years ago we probably would have thought, uh, what are you talking about? But ever since 9-11, everything has changed.
4: Well, what if I asked you right now, what if I uh, spoke to the citizens of uh, this country and said, how would you like to eliminate gangs? How would you like to ensure against, teenage pregnancy, uh, how would you like to eliminate drugs, how, all of the many problems that today we just kind of throw our hands in the air and say, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Well, what if we? What if I could say uh, I have a system that will eliminate
1: yeah, that? Guaranteed.
4: Problem? Guaranteed. And, of course, when these kids are isolated this way and they are programmed properly uh, as they would call it then uh, these problems do disappear and hence the domestic tranquility we have uh, a society that is now uh, free of the many problems that it was facing before
1: and of course a part of a young person's development is this this system of thinking called critical thinking you know those kinds of skills that are so necessary to solve problems
4: that's right that's right. Uh, I, I guess maybe a way of saying is, it's kind of an easy way to, to proceed to solve our problems. Uh, and what it really is, it's an imposition of social and cultural uniformity. Uh, everyone now has to accept. Well, well it's also, which me, is
1: against the natural order of things. Yes, it is. Totally. Totally. And yet it is a solution.
4: I think that if you ask almost any parent uh, what he would like to achieve uh, by placing his son or daughter in school is uh, that that child would become almost a clone of of himself. Um, That is, the child would uh, accept his values, his beliefs. If he's a... Republican, you want, if you're a Republican, you want him to be a Republican. If you're a Yankee fan, you want him to be a Yankee fan. If, uh, if you like classical music, you want him to like classical music. Well, it doesn't always work that way. They learn to think for themselves and they don't always accept your values.
1: Well, as you point out, everybody today is talking about how our schools are failing and nobody seems to do anything about it. Dormant enhancement most assuredly offers a solution, but. (laughs) (laughs) The big but. (laughs) Yeah. That's what this is all about. Well, it's a fascinating view of the world. I hope you're not prophetic.
4: (laughs) Well, I hope so, too. But uh, I think we might be headed in that direction.
1: Well, it would make a great movie, a great TV series. Who knows where all this will lead to? But for now, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Jack, tell us how to get your book, Dominant Enhancement.
4: How to get it? Well, let me see. It's uh, published by iUniverse.
1: You can go to iUniverse.com.
4: Okay, uh, iUniverse.com. Uh, it's Dormant Enhancement. Uh, kind of a strange title it almost sounds a little kinky but uh, <laughs> that was the title given to the program by the creators um, I have a website uh, it's uh, jackrichards.com and you can get all the information you need there uh, how to, uh, where to find the book and all the important information
1: well thank you Jack thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio thank you Steve
4: Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
3: Girlfriended is on TuggyNet And then be a part of Girlfriend It, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriend It with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back
0: to iUniverse Radio, with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, A Star to Sail Her By, a five-year odyssey of coming of age at sea, and the author is Alex Ellison, and Alex joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alex. Hey, how good, are to, you? good to have you with us, 16-year-old Alex, right? That is correct. 16 years old, and he has sailed around the world with his family a one-year planned sailing journey that turned into five years, more than 25,000 nautical miles, and he has written his memoir, A Star to Sail Her By. Amazing, Alex. My goodness, it's amazing for the professionals, but to think that the family decided to do it, that must have been quite a decision. Tell us about how you as a family, your mom and dad and your younger sister and you, decided to sail around the world.
5: Well, it all um, all started back when we were living in the United States in Connecticut. We, uh, as a family, didn't think we were seeing enough of each other. And, you know, our lives were all marching past uh, in the fast-paced world. And it, we decided that we just needed to take a break from that. So, my parents thought that a one-year sabbatical would do the trick, and that's how we got it going. Thought it'd be a one-year adventure on a sailboat. We'd just go down to the Caribbean, explore a little bit, turn back, and come home, and pick up our lives in New England. But that it, changed, it so.
1: but it was a little different than that, obviously. <laughs>
5: Absolutely.
1: Uh, 25,000 nautical miles later. uh, Now, you folks have a 47-foot sloop, the promise?
5: Yep, that is the boat we made the trip on.
1: And you must be veteran sailors.
5: I would say that uh, after that trip, we are all definitely veteran sailors. (laughs) Before
1: you went on the trip, how much experience did you have?
5: Uh, Pretty minimal. Uh, Each summer, my family would go for a few weeks of sailing in the New England area, but nothing significant. I would say that the trip itself was where I learned to sail.
1: Now, how old were you when you started? Eight years old. Eight years old, and your younger sister?
5: She was six at the time.
1: Six, and she has uh, a challenge?
5: She does. She is uh, mildly autistic, which adds a whole other dimension of complexity to the trip for her.
1: Now, when your mom and dad and and you and your sister first decided to do this, uh, obviously you had a plan. That is
5: true. And And that plan was uh, to simply, um, we were going to leave in June of 2003, and we were going to start off in a race, actually. My parents and a couple other sailing friends they knew would sail the boat from New England, To Bermuda in the Marion Bermuda race just because that's a great uh, support system for the first major passage of the boat and then from Bermuda we made a thousand mile ten day passage to the Caribbean so that was our plan
1: That was the plan uh, but you ended up going a lot further. Uh, Tell us some of the things that happened
5: Well after about seven months out, we decided that it was, uh, just too good to, too good to pass up on. Like, uh, I mean, for example, we, uh, in the uh, in the very first week we were out, we, uh, we, just, we were sailing, um, in this incredible storm. It's actually a gale force winds and waves breaking over the boat, and somehow there was hail in the Caribbean during that, and, um... We decided that it was just a little too much, and after having been out at sea for so long, we decided that we'd pull into the nearest harbor, which happens to be on the island of St. Vincent. And that, we go into this harbor called Waliabu. You can barely see it. It's super foggy, and but we can sort of see the outline of some cliffs as we go in. And as we head into the harbor, this one guy in a boat comes out, little rowboat, and he's like, hi. I'm going to tow you in. So he tows us in. This is a guy in a rowboat towing a 23-ton boat. And we get in, and there's an archway by the entrance to the harbor, and from it there are a couple people hanging. And we go in further and just see a couple old, old big boats, and all the buildings are cobblestone and just ancient barrels everywhere. And as we go into checking at customs, we we ask, what is this? It feels like we just sailed back in time. And they're like, oh, yeah, we just finished uh, filming Pirates of the Caribbean here. But they left the set up.
1: <laughs> Must have been worried for a little bit.
5: <laughs> a little bit. It was pretty concerning.
1: Oh, will bet. i uh, bet. I'll bet. I was getting concerned, you telling the story. <laughs> oh, yeah, seeing a few people hanging there, that would get your attention.
5: Yeah. But it was just all sorts of um, funny, sometimes threatening adventures that were really quite enriching to the trip, and that was really why we had to stay out.
1: Well, of course, uh, a real extreme on your trip, you almost died.
5: That is true, and that was uh, a very much unforeseen part of the plot. Um, We were uh, in this uh, one island, Grenada, and we thought it'd be great fun to go swimming in some of the local waterfalls, which were absolutely magnificent, good 200 feet up, water cascading everywhere. And it seemed like a good idea to go swimming. Unfortunately, the water was contaminated by livestock, and I had to be medically evacuated and spent a few months in the hospital recovering, so...
1: So Tropical Encephal... How do you pronounce that?
5: It uh, Leptospirosis Encephalitis. So.
1: Very serious, obviously, disease. Uh, you were there for a prolonged period, uh, but you were able to get well and, of course, return. Where did you catch up with the family?
5: That was... Um, this, is the, this is definitely part of the plan that we never really saw coming. We, um, by the time I recovered... I was still a little shaky. I mean, nearly dying is something that takes a while to recover from. So we wanted to return to the boat. But given how unstable I was, that was not a good decision. But we didn't want to stay in the United States either. So we settled on moving to an island in the Caribbean for a few years.
1: For a few years?
5: A few years. We spent three years on the island of Nevis and, uh after three years there we decided to uh then we picked up the boat and we crossed the crossed most of the pacific to where uh the boat ultimately ended up in australia
1: australia my goodness now you kept a journal through all of this uh, more than 5 years and you thought it would be woven into a book someday uh as you look back on your journal, here you are, eight years of age when you started, and 15 when you got back. Uh, when you look at that, how do you see yourself changing?
5: Mainly, I think I see myself changing as I go through the journals. And part of it is just um, just maturing, like going. You go from uh, handwriting that takes up a, a quarter of the page with each line talking about little fish that I saw to uh, to detailed, detailed notes that took up pages for each day. You see, um, really the, sh- the biggest change is the shift in focus. It becomes much, I become more sensitive to the places we visited and the events that occurred. And I became a much more in tune with the crew and as a sailor.
1: Because you became a full, active crew member.
5: Absolutely. I, you know, um, at the age of eight, there was not a whole lot I could do in the way of being a crew member, but by the time we were crossing the Pacific, I was, we were making several day passages, and I would be the only one awake as we sailed through the night.
1: And obviously, your mom and dad uh, trusted you and had full confidence in you, so you really had an incredible uh, life changing experience
5: absolutely. It was a huge privilege that my parents would trust trust me to that extent and it was a really empowering part of the trip to be able to take night shifts like that.
1: Now your sister's name is Laura Laura. now she being younger and also having some special needs. How did your relationship change with her?
5: Well, I would say that she, um, her, her perspective on the trip is a little bit different from mine, but I would say that she, too, really did enjoy it. And, but in a slightly different way. Um, she never participated as a crew member to the same extent. So, our relationship did significantly improve. Like, we went from, uh, sort of antagonistic siblings at the start to really being members of a team together by the end.
1: Well, I'm sure all those experiences would bring that together, and I'm sure the two of you share a relationship that you would have never had if you hadn't have done this.
5: It's absolutely true. Like, And living in such close quarters with people, um, 47 feet for four people, not a lot of room, so... No matter how you start off, you sort of don't really have a choice but to learn to become good friends and love them. So,
1: so how lo- how long would you be out to sea before you would come into a port to get food, water?
5: Uh, the longest we ever went was about 10, 11 days. And that was actually my very first passage from Bermuda to Antigua in the Caribbean. But we had plenty of other trips that were... Um, four to seven nights long.
1: What would you say are your favorite memories? Give us a few.
5: Favorite memories? Uh, I would have to say that, um, this, although somewhat intre, uh, intrepidating, I would say our sail to the island of aitutaki in the Pacific is one of my absolute favorites. We.
1: Um, where is that?
5: It's, um, if you looked at that big blue splotch that's the Pacific Ocean on a globe and put your finger right about in the middle, it'd be somewhere around there.
1: So um, obviously far, far away from any major island of, or landmass of any kind.
5: Absolutely. Which is, uh, makes it all the more concerning because as we uh, sail to this little island, which is probably about, i guess maybe five to ten square miles large we um we have a tropical storm coming up from the south and we have um our engine actually fails as we're sailing in which um so the combination of storm and down hardware made the passage very difficult as we uh we actually had to get into the island which is um mainly a lagoon, it's so you have to get through a coral reef, which is a channel that is 40 feet wide for a boat that is 50 feet long. So going through there in a storm with no engine was one of the most remarkable feats we ever made as a crew. But that was one of my favorite memories.
1: It sounds like right out of the movies. What about uh, any major storms? Uh, How big did the seas get?
5: Uh, pictures of me when I'm very little, about eight years old, just sitting in the cockpit, and there's just a wall of water behind the boat in the background of the picture. We definitely had waves that were, uh, I don't know if I could accurately put a number on it, but I'd say upwards of 20 feet. You'd be in the trough of the wave, and you'd be looking up on either side, and just these gigantic slopes of water that are coming a good way up the mast. Not breaking, but these enormous swells.
1: And now you're a junior,
5: going into my senior year. Oh, you're going school, yeah. into your
1: senior year at Phillips Exeter Academy.
5: It's a fancy name for boarding school up in New Hampshire.
1: New Hampshire, before uh, before college, and uh, you're a you're on the varsity crew team there. That's a great experience for you.
5: It is. It's. Uh, I would say that. Uh, My way of maintaining a connection with the water, just because they don't really have a sailing team, but this has become my new passion and way of staying connected to the water.
1: Are you going to sail again in the future by yourself or with your family, or do you have plans to make a long voyage again?
5: I would say that in general that's a little too far off to really plan, but I have every intention of making my first residence a boat. (laughs) Not getting an apartment, not getting a house, I'm living on a boat.
1: Well, you certainly know how to do it, since you were gone for so long, uh, a five, a a one-year journey that turned into five years, and more than 25,000 nautical miles, Alex Ellison and his book, A Star to Sail By, a five-year odyssey of coming of age at sea, Alex, tell us how to get your book.
5: You can order it from iUniverse.com. Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, or you could pick it up in your local bookstore.
1: Thank you, Alex. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio.
5: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio, radio with a cutting edge.